So today what we'll do is we'll just go through the first chapter. And as you can see from the title there, our right response to God's chastisement. Basically the book, each chapter begins with God's chastisement and then an appeal for God's people to respond. And I'm calling it part one because as we make our way in chapter two, we will basically find the same message. Chastisement and then an appeal to respond appropriately. The advantage with chapter two is that you then also have the apocalyptic aspect or maybe one that is pointing to the future, the promise of God in terms of what will happen in the end. So I won't read the whole chapter at once. We will go through it together. And I want us to begin with just the first verse asking the question, who was Joel? Who was he ministering to? When did he minister? And so on. So the, this one tells us in very simple words, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And all we are being told there is that this, again, is not simply a man who is philosophizing, just thinking about the future and then preaching whatever is, is on his heart. The words that we have here are the words of Almighty God. He revealed them to Joel. It is the burden of the Lord that came to Joel. And then we are told that he was the son of Pethuel. Basically, we know very little about the prophet Joel himself, except what he tells us in this first verse. Beyond this, we know absolutely nothing. Unlike Hosea, who was beginning to tell us the Lord told me to go and marry this woman and so on and so forth, so that we, we get a bit of biographical sketch with respect to Joel, he doesn't tell us anything except that he was the son of Pethuel. His name, which is only mentioned once in this entire book, and that is in this verse, means Jehovah is God. That's what it means. Jehovah is God. And as we've noticed here, he is mentioned as the, name, the son of Pethuel. Now, the only reason why that is added in the text is because there are other Joels that are mentioned, especially in First and Second Chronicles and in Ezra and Nehemiah. And all of them are mentioned as the son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. So by mentioning him as the son of Pethuel, it becomes fairly clear he is not... He is not one of those that were mentioned in those other books of the Bible. The other aspect that we learn from uh, this book about Joel is that he evidently was living after Assyria had already conquered the, the other ten tribes. That, that the tribes that are rightly called Israel. So Assyria was the first nation from the north 
that God sent came and devastated ten of the twelve tribes and then left Judah, which is normally referred to as the southern kingdom. And that's where um, Joel was ministering. So he was now really warning the final two tribes that they should repent, otherwise they were going to suffer. So you can't miss the fact that as you go through these three chapters of Joel, that Joel is ministering in the context of Jerusalem itself, which was the capital city of uh, the whole of Israel, but more specifically, the capital city of Judah. So those are the, some of the things that we learn from the rest of this book. In terms of Joel's major message to uh, the people that were listening to him, it was primarily a call to repentance. That's what it was. It was a call to repentance in view of the fact that the people of Israel were already taken into captivity, so that's warning shots. But more than that, it was that the people of Judah themselves had already also begun to suffer the consequences of God's judgment. So in a way, you'd think that it would make sense that they would immediately make the necessary change so that they would, instead of receiving God's curse upon their lives, they would instead receive God's mercy and blessing. You would think that's what they would do. And so he continually appeals to them that they might do so. Two more aspects concerning uh, this prophet. When you read most of this book, in fact, if you sort of just quickly peep all the way to the end of chapter 2, you will notice that almost the whole book is poetry. Almost the whole book. You have a very small section that goes into what we call prose. And that is chapter 2, verse 30, to chapter 3, verse 8. That's the only section that now converts into simple narration and um, history, so to speak. But prior to that, it is poetry, and after that, it is poetry. You remember when we were going through Hosea that it was in that there the very beginning that was historical. You remember that? Um, in chapter 1, the whole of chapter 1 of Hosea was a narrative. Chapter 2 went into poetry. Somewhere in the middle of chapter 2 was a narrative again or prose. And then the whole of chapter 3 was uh, prose. But I need to say, when I say the whole of chapter 3, it was the shortest chapter. So it was very, very short. So there's a slight difference there between Joel and uh, Hosea. And then the last aspect of uh, Joel's um, prophecy is um, that there is one part of Joel that is quoted in the New Testament, only one. And it was quoted on the day of Pentecost. 
I'll just quickly ask you to turn with me there. Uh, so if anybody doubts that we are dealing with Holy Scripture, at least the New Testament um, disciples and apostles took it as the word of God. So chapter 2. Chapter 2. And uh, I begin reading from verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice. This was the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had come down. They had spoken in tongues. There were tongues of fire that were leaping off their heads. People had come rushing in, began to hear them speaking languages that they had never learned. And I want to repeat, they were real languages. It wasn't gibberish here as they go on to speak. So people began to conclude these guys must be drunk. I mean, this is in the morning, you know, how do people start talking like this? So Peter, standing with the eleven, um, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. That was nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. <clears throat> now, this phrase, the day of the Lord, is a favorite phrase for Joel. It refers to the day of disaster, the day when God will come in wrath and punish sinners. So before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be served. Now what is interesting, therefore, as I take you to that text, is that here is a, a book that is on chastisement, punishment, discipline, and a call to repentance. In the midst of it, God is saying, so it's right there in chapter 2, by the way, what I've quoted is from chapter 2. God is already speaking very positively in the future that a time is going to come when I'm actually going to, as it were, send a revival among my people. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send a revival just before disaster finally comes. Again, 
the point I want us to keep noticing as we go through the minor prophets is that this is not a God who is frustrated, a God who is just now wanting to destroy everything out of anger. Here is a God who is punishing, disciplining, chastising in order to restore. That's what he's doing. He is punishing in order to restore. Well then, let's quickly proceed and look at the first chapter. And you look at the first chapter, we begin with the chastisement. So the title of my sermon is Our Right Response to God's Chastisement. And I want us to notice, first of all, the chastisement. And then after that, we will notice the right response. And how does Joel begin? He begins by speaking about a punishment that is going to come upon Judah. Remember, he is primarily ministering to Judah. And he is saying it is a punishment like never before. There have been times when God has brought a plague among his people. They have suffered, they have recovered, and so on. But this is going to be so unique that it is going to enter into the history books to be told to generation after generation. Look at verse 2 and verse 3. Hear this, you elders. So this is not a simple sermon in a corner among two or three households. He's speaking to the nation. He's speaking to the leaders. Listen, all who live in the land. So through them, he's talking to everybody. Has anything like this ever happened in your days? Or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children. And let your children tell it to their children. And their children to the next generation. This won't be small that is coming upon you. And in fact, it has already begun to happen. And sure enough, we know that that's exactly what ended up happening we have the bulk of information concerning both the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity. We have information about the way in which Israel and Judah were completely devastated. It is written down in black and white for generation after generation to come and know. And then as he puts it in verse 4, this will be a punishment that will leave precious little. Precious little. Look at the way he puts it. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Now, it's a picture language. It may have been locusts that were coming, but the picture is one of um, just when you are thinking that the West is over, another one comes. We were learning uh, earlier on at the beginning of this service concerning Job. And you remember how it was with Job. One informant after another arrives. Another one comes. Another one comes. And you're sort of hoping, okay, I hope this is the last. Another one comes. And he must have been hoping at least, I hope my children are safe. 
because up to that point, it was everything else except his children. And then finally, bang, one arrives and says, your children were feasting. A great wind came, hit the four corners of the building. It came crashing down, and all your children are dead. What is there that is remaining now? Basically, this is the kind of information that is being talked about here. It's like being in a war, and as you are in that war, first of all, perhaps your, your electricity uh, source is, is damaged, and you say, well, at least we have water. And then before you know it, even the source of your water is damaged. Well, at least we can still get to the shops. Before you know it, even ShopRite is gone. Ah, you start looking at one another now and say, okay, uh, can things get worse now? Okay, so whatever it is you are saying, at least is also going away. That's the punishment that God was bringing upon them. But why was he doing this? Is it that simply God wants to, to destroy his people? No. It is that he wants to awaken them to their true condition, their true condition, so that they might come in genuine repentance towards him. And so he doesn't just use providence, as difficult as that might be, he then also sends his messengers, the prophets. And so prophet Joel is now speaking. And he is making an appeal to the remaining nation of Judah. Look at the way he appeals there. Verse 5. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all of you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. Now again, remember, this is poetry. The key there is weep, wail, wail. He's basically appealing to them to respond in a particular way. And it is to respond, if I could make it, um, if I could put it this way, in grief. That's what he's saying. That they should respond in grief. Because this disaster has come. Now, in referring to drunkards and drinkers of wine, it is the, the, the aspect of um, being in a, in a stupor. In a stupor. Uh, you know, when a person is drunk, they, they can end up sleeping in a ditch and they're not even aware that they're sleeping uh, in, a, in a, a dirty, muddy place until the morning when they look at their clothes and they say, what happened? What happened? They, they, they're not aware. They vomit over their clothes. They're not conscious of this until the morning and they're looking at the vomit and saying, can't believe it. Was this me? And so forth. They are in some kind of stupor. And basically, is, this is meant to be uh, an awakening call, not so much just drunkards, 
and drinkers of wine, but to, to individuals who are in a spiritual stupor. That they might wake up to the realization this is how bad our situation is, spiritually speaking. You know, nothing surprises a, a Christian who's working with the Lord more than looking at somebody else who claims to be a Christian who's living in compromise and sin. You, you sort of say to yourself, isn't it obvious, eh? for instance, that a Christian should be reading his Bible? So you, you live together in the same home. And, and, and the guy just never reads his Bible. They're all weak. Isn't it so? But isn't it obvious? Isn't it obvious that apart from praying over food, you should also be actually praying to God? But the person doesn't. Isn't it obvious that you don't make non Christians your closest friends? Isn't it obvious? That must be. But the backslider, if he's at all a Christian, it doesn't register. He's in a spirit of stupor. It just doesn't occur that this is to be in a bad spiritual state. At every excuse, the person misses church, and, and to them, just, just part of life. Are you going to church? No. Oh, why? Well, I can watch it on live stream. What's your problem? Just life. What's your problem? busy. I want to go and visit an uncle across town. I, I've got a friend I haven't seen for a long time. He's just arrived from the UK. So, <laughs> so I'm going to visit. You know, so church, you know, that's life. There's no, it's not registering that this is to be in a terrible state. Think in terms of regular financial giving tithes and offerings it can be two months three months the person hasn't fulfilled their obligation and the conscience is just not affected at all it's life as usual life as usual so what joel is doing here is basically shaking the person and saying wake up wake up you can't go on like this. This spiritual stupor is something you need to wake up from. So God's people often are in these two categories. You've got those who are spiritually asleep. They are sick, but they don't know it. And then you've got those who are awake and alive and are living before the Lord. I've, I've never forgotten the first time I got to know about leprosy and the fact that it's actually not a disease where your fingers or your earlobes or your toes are being chopped off. But rather, it's that your nerve endings are dead. And therefore, as you are moving around or you, you brush against some, something, you, you don't feel that you brushed against something. And so in the process, 
you actually knock off your fingers and knock off your toes and you don't know it. Now, somebody whose nerve endings are alive, you know what happens. Eh? We can even know what your mother tongue is at that point because you cry in your mother tongue even if you are educated in English. That's being alive. But the leprosy, the, the, the leper, is like the person being referred to here. They just are not conscious that I am in a bad spiritual place. Now, in verse 6 downwards, there is a hint as I told you earlier, that the Assyrian captivity has already taken place. Listen to verse 6 and verse 7. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Again, it's poetry. But the point in the poetry is that a devastating nation has come down. And most likely, it is the nation of Assyria, and it has come to destroy the, uh, the ten tribes. And in in destroying the ten tribes, it's not simply the individuals. It is destroying everything along the way. So if you can try and imagine the whole of Zambia, and that Zambia has ten provinces. So try and imagine eight provinces destroyed. Eight. I mean, that's, that's your resources gone. Eight. A number of those provinces produce some kind of um, um, economic activity gone. And now you only have but two provinces out of an entire nation remaining. And that's why he's saying, stripped off their bark, thrown it away, leaving their branches white. So, again, to use another picture, imagine that you've got a, a small farm maybe 10 acres, and next door to you is your, um, a fellow farmer, or rather someone who has a, a, a game reserve, and he's sort of been bringing up uh, elephants. And so there you are, you've grown your maize and whatever else might be, and sadly, somewhere in that fence, the place is open. And out come these elephants, and they literally walk through eight-tenths of your entire field. You won't be celebrating at least two. <laughs> you literally be blind to the two. Because your mind will be in terms of what a loss has taken place here. And that's the point that is there. An invasion has taken place. The result of this 
is to render religious activities now impossible. Completely impossible. Because the input into those religious activities, the food that's supposed to go to Levites, the food that's supposed to go to the house of the Lord, the animals that are supposed to come to be slaughtered in the house of the Lord, and so on. Where they come from, they have been completely destroyed. Look at the way he puts it in verse 8 down um, to verse 10. Now again, this aspect of mourning, wailing, weeping, he continues. Because that's, he's, he's appealing for a kind of response. A kind of response. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. So the picture there is, is, is a woman who uh, is working towards getting married. And she's arranged everything, you know, the wedding dress and so on. And then just before the wedding day, her bridegroom is killed. Killed. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Now I'll come to this picture towards the end, but just capture it. Imagine this young lady, the way she will be when you go to visit her. Totally devastated. Totally devastated. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning. Those who minister before the Lord. Why? The fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. The olive oil fails. And he continues because it's a complete devastation. Despair, he says, you farmers. And there it is again. Well, you vine growers, grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. And he then mentions the opposite of wailing. Surely the people's joy is withered. Away. He says, there is an absence of joy, but he's calling for not simply the absence of joy, he's calling for actual wailing, for weeping. What is that all about? Well, he now asks for a response in more detail. And that is verse 13 downwards. And basically, the appeal is for not just wailing, but fasting as well. In other words, turning it into a religious activity deliberately in order to seek the Lord. Listen to the way he puts it now. Verse 13, this is the response, a call to repentance. Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. So the mourning is still there. Wail, you who minister before the altar. And then he says, come, spend the night in sackcloth. 
you who minister before my God, for the grain offering and the drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast. Call a solemn assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. I mean, surely that is serious business. But that's the point he's making. He's saying, look, there has been a devastation of the nation. Yes, I've been telling you, weep, well, cry. But I am saying, call everybody to a period of fasting. Humble yourselves before the Lord. It's not enough that you are in your house crying. But bring everybody together so that we may seek the Lord in this way. And that little phrase in verse 15, the one I talked about, Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. That little phrase, the day of the Lord. It's not referring to the Lord's day, which would have been a Sabbath then, but it's the day of the Lord. And it's a day when the Lord comes to destroy. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. He's basically saying, quickly, don't just cry, fast before the final judgment comes and takes even these two remaining tribes into captivity. Deal with your sin now. He comes back again to the issue of there's no joy and there are no food supplies. Verse 16 to verse 18. Surely you can see. Come on. Things are not well. You can see. Deal with this. He puts it in question form there. Has not the food been cut off? Before our very eyes? Can't you see joy and gladness from the house of our God? Can't you see? Again, is this spiritual stupor? It should be visible to you. Come on. Joel is saying, the seeds are shriveled beneath the clothes. I think all of us in Zambia know what this means, eh? when you, you, you are given groundnuts while they are still in their shells. Sometimes it's a terrible mockery because, you know, you pacha. There are little ones there that are sick. Pacha. By the time you get to the fourth one, you feel like saying, ah, is this a mockery? <laughs> eh? Because surely, I'm hoping that when I crack open these groundnuts, I'll find good, healthy, well-rounded groundnut seeds inside. The seeds are shriveled beneath the clothes. The storehouses are in ruins. 
The granaries have been broken down, for the grain has dried up. How the cattle mourn. Eh? Even the very animals are crying. Can't you see that there's a problem here? The herds mill about because they have no pasture. He says, even the flocks of sheep are suffering. Eh? I mean, things are bad. Even your animals, when you look at them, they are looking back at you saying, Buana, things are tough. And you still continue in your spiritual stupor. Terrible, isn't it? But friends, that's the state of a backslidden people. I'm telling you, you can talk and talk and talk until your head pops off your shoulders, they still continue as if nothing is wrong. Just continue. By the time you are coming to know the way they were living behind the scenes and they were still listening to your sermons, you sort of say, were we in the same building? Did you plug your ears? Because these are the messages that were being delivered and you were sitting there. But what is worse is when you begin to hear what was even happening behind the scenes, that there were already these warning shots. Things were not well in the marriage. Things were not well at the workplace. Things were not well even in the physical being of the person. There was every sign that God was knocking on the person's conscience and yet even with that, they were still continuing. It's incredible. So by the time God is saying enough is enough, Everybody will be saying, yeah, the, the guy bit off more than he could chew. She bit off more than she could chew. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. How does he end? And with that, I must hurry on to close. Joel ends this chapter with prayer. Why? He too is affected. You know, when God is judging backsliders, they don't suffer alone. Others suffer with them. If it's a parent, the children also suffer. If it's a child, the parents also suffer. If it's a church member, the church also suffers, especially church leaders also suffer. Nobody living in a backslidden state does so in a little cubicle alone. Nobody. In this particular case, well, the supplies were not there. Joel did not have a private little source of animals and oil and wine and so on in a little corner. He also was suffering from lack, except the difference is he was crying to God. The backsliders were not. Verse 19 and 20. To you, Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness. There it is. 
and flames have burnt up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up. The fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness. He's also suffering. But here's the difference. He's spiritually alive. He's spiritually alive. And in his case, he goes to God and cries to God that God might have mercy. What then are we learning here? What is the right response to God's chastisement? It is self-humiliating repentance. Self-humiliating repentance. It's a person who comes away from so many activities of life and says, let me close myself up with God. Let God deal with me. Let the Lord restore me to the joy that I once knew. Let the Lord deal with me so that I can once again be what I once was. When Jesus was uh, beginning his first sermon, what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, have you noticed that the first beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit. And it's referring to those not just who are spiritually poor, but who are painfully conscious that they are spiritually poor. The second beatitude says, blessed are those who mourn. It's the consequence of that knowledge. They mourn, they weep, they wail over their sin. And that inevitably happens to anybody who becomes a Christian. At the point of becoming Christians, nobody goes to the Lord whistling, even clicking his fingers, Jesus, wonderful Savior, and so on. They, they are distraught. They go to him, while on others thou art calling, do not pass me. There's grief, even as they seek the Lord. It ought to be the same when dealing with coming back from a backslidden state. There needs to be this self-emptying, self-humiliating repentance, where a person digs deep in the soul in order to come out right. One of the things that shocks me every so often, and uh, my fellow elders, I'm sure, can testify the same, is that, you know, often in today's world, you can be busy dealing with somebody who's backslidden, and you are talking to them, and apparently they are recognizing their state and they are now beginning to deal with it. So when you're with them in that closed-door meeting, you say, yeah, I think they are truly broken. The following morning, you see them on, on social media. The same people. 
are, are they genuinely repentant? Are they? Are they in a state of mourning? When they are quickly now wanting the world to know that they are very, very successful, that, you know, they were at this hotel the other day, at you know, this other restaurant, this day, and so on. There's something very wrong with that. Something very, very wrong. Because either you are a hypocrite on the repentance or you are a hypocrite on social media. It must be one or the other. And surely, if that's your state, then do something. Don't just fast from food. Fast from social media. Fast from school. Fast from work. Fast from those birthday parties. Fast from, I don't know what else it is that is making life look as if it's normal. Say to your friends, guys, I'm dealing with this issue in my life. I might not give you the details. But for the next few days, please excuse me. I've got serious dealings with God to do with my soul. Too much has gone wrong. I need to start afresh. Yes, your friends will notice that you've disappeared from Facebook and they'll come to you to say, hey, what has happened? And you can say to them, I took a fast from Facebook because there were issues I needed to handle in my life. Self-humiliating repentance. It is for the sake of your spiritual life that you must Weep, well, cry, and whatever else it is, which hopefully you will not do on social media. You've closed yourself away from all this. It's between you and the Lord. And thankfully, as we will be having the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, that's why Jesus came. He came that we might have a place for forgiveness, salvation, and restoration. He actually wants us to come to him. The Lord's Supper is not for those who can't remember the last time they sinned. It's for those who are poor in spirit and who mourn. They shall be comforted. May God help us in genuine reality to actually come and partake of the bread while our backsliding state screams at us. We should be saying, Lord, thank you. You sent a savior. Even this sin can be forgiven. Amen.